Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible study here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. I'm Pastor Kevin Thompson, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning. We get to study God's Word together. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for giving us this new day. Especially as we look outside this morning, we see the rain. And Lord, we know that you are taking care of us every single day, even as you water this earth and give us the very things we need. And so, Lord, we especially give you thanks that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, that he died and rose for every single one of us, and that today in your word, we get to again hear of this great, wonderful news, and how especially, Lord, it's so wonderful that this news is for all people in this entire world. And so, Lord, may your spirit be with us as we study your word together and be strengthened in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, we are looking at, as usual, the lectionary readings assigned for next week. And yes, again, the readings are a little bit long, uh, but it's great to be able to spend plenty of time in the Word. So we're going to look at the readings for next week that begin with Acts chapter 11. And as you've heard, probably all of us during this Easter season talk about, we have a first reading instead of Old Testament. So we're looking at Acts as the church spreads the, the news of this Savior. As I, I prefer to do, let's first start by just hearing the word of God from Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same Spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And here ends our reading for next week. Okay, so in part, again, like I said, it's a longer reading, uh, but it's, it's packed full of amazing things that we get at. And actually, Acts chapter 11, the challenging thing for us as we go through the lectionary is that we're kind of, we're hearing a part of scripture, but we don't get the original 
account of what happened. As you saw here in the middle, or kind of the first part of Acts 11, Peter recounts this vision. And that goes back a little bit earlier in Acts, and we're not actually going to dig into that an incredible, incredible amount. So if you want to go earlier on in Acts and study that, because today we're not really going to focus as much on that vision, but really what does the rest of this account that Peter gives um, tell us about our Savior? So if we look there in the beginning, verse uh, 1, chapter 11, the apostles and brothers. So first of all, we just have these brothers referring to Jewish converts, so those who are Christians. They went throughout Judea and they heard that Gentiles also had received the word of God. So first of all, when we hear this, what did they receive? They received the word of God. Okay? And so essentially what that means is they received the word that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. They received the word that Jesus is who he came to show he is, and especially the word that he died and rose again. So to hear the word of God is, is really essentially getting at, they heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So even these Gentiles received the word of God, the message of Christ as the Savior for the world. But as we're going to get at here, the issue is that the Gentiles are also receiving this. Okay, so the Gentiles, and we have this distinction probably likely in this room, and many people listening, we already know this distinction. We've heard it many times, right? The Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews who followed God's laws and kept his, all his laws that he had given to them originally, and then there's the Gentiles, not yet a part of that people. Which is spoiler alert, because there's no way to get around it. The Gentiles, too, are part of God's people. And that's what we're getting at here, right here in this first verse. Even the Gentiles receive the word of God. And so we get to verse 2, and here's where we start to really see the distinction between those two parties. Peter went out to Jerusalem, and there's the circumcision party, and then the uncircumcised. So right here in verse 2, we see a very strong distinction. Could we even say a division of these two kinds of people? The people who were circumcised, who were ultimately following God and all his laws, the Jews, and then the uncircumcised. Those who weren't keeping all the laws, and specifically, without getting into detail on it, those who were actually, literally, circumcised or not. Because, without getting into it again, there, it was a literal thing that happened as part to separate the people, and these people weren't. As we see on, later on, this also then becomes just terms, circumcision, uncircumcision, to refer to simply those who are part of God's people. And so there's this really strong division between these two groups. The one group, the circumcision party, they're essentially saying, you went with them and you ate with them. You're being with them. You're spending time with them. You're sitting with them. You're dining with them. You're associating with those people. They didn't think that those people should be associated with. That those people should be with them because they weren't really a part of them. They were some other group. They were even, well, we could say, unclean. Why are you with those people? We don't associate with those people. They shouldn't be in our midst. And so, if we take a step back and think about it for a second, this is, not, this is definitely not the first time we see a division between people who say, we are God's people and those are not God's people. We are God's people, and we shouldn't associate with them. It's not the first time in Scripture where there's a distinction that ultimately causes division and dissension looking down on other people. But very clearly here, reading this after the resurrection and Easter season, we see it, and we see that there's this division, and it's causing them to look down on those people. Do you think we see people looking down on others today? 
Could we not also draw a similar distinction that say people could be today saying, well, we're people of God. We shouldn't associate with those people. In what ways might people look on others today? What might be some ways that they say you shouldn't associate with those people? Their dress, like what they wear, right? The way they look physically, maybe. What else? What? Status, like job and wealth and the like, okay. Is there something else over here? What's that? Skin color, right? You could even, and then even, I think there's even, you know, going with skin color, also tattoos and stuff, the way that they, stacking on top of dress, the way that they look and take care of their body. Well, we shouldn't associate with those people. They're not, they're not really part of us. They shouldn't be with us. They're unclean, right? And just imagine for a second, we see this issue right here in Acts 11, the early church, essentially. Could you imagine what it would be like if right then and there, they solved the whole problem of them versus us. Right then and there, if they figured out, and Peter gave this great account, and he told the people, well, Christ is for all people, and it just moved, the Spirit moved in them and solved all the problems, and there was no longer a them versus us. It'd be pretty nice, wouldn't it? Right? Obviously, you look at me like, yeah, but that's not the case. Okay? Because you just listed the fact there's distinctions today. And unfortunately, there's many people that today... Maybe even, dare we say it, ourselves, at times we think, well, I'm not going to associate with them. I'm not going to eat with them. I'm not going to be with them because they're, they're too much of this. They're too much of that. Right? So we see that this, this type of division occurs today. Okay, so let's get back into the scripture because I don't want to get us too lost in, high applica in application today without looking essentially at what we have here in God's work. Okay, so they're criticizing them for eating with these other people, okay? And so the other thing is, is we're, when we get into this vision, it's not, I don't want us to focus too much on the eating, okay? But the fact that they are with them, they are associated with them, and they are together. So these two parties, and then Peter began in verse 4. Peter began and explained it to them in order. And then we go on as we, we already read, and we'll get to that. But I want you to think about something for a second. In this account... In, my, in the, the Bible, the copy of the Bible I'm using here, its subtitle is Peter Reports to the Church. And in some other Bibles, the, the subtitle might be Peter and Cornelius. Okay, so these subtitles, which again, subtitles are not scriptural, but they are the best way to help us focus on what's going on in this passage of scripture. But two things I want you to notice about this section. That these subtitles can distract us, because one, if, it, if you focus on it being Peter reporting to the church... Or Peter and Cornelius, it draws us away from the fact that it's really not about Peter. It's not about Cornelius. It's not about the, tr the, the people who were there, but it's about God. I know this sounds a little bit redundant. Okay, of course, pastor's standing up here and he's saying, it's not about people, it's about God, right? Of course, it's all about God. But especially here, what we're going to see as we dive into his report to the church, it's not about him and what he did and who he was. But how did God consistently use him? God consistently come to him? How did God act? And you see throughout the rest of this passage, it's God, God, God. It's not about Peter. It's about God acting and God doing things in his life and in the lives of those around him to spread his word. The word of the Lord about his son, the savior of the world. So that's one huge takeaway, that it's all about God who is working through all this. The other thing I want you to notice about this is... 
So as I said, there's this division and this, there's these distinctions. And so Peter's trying to essentially rebuttal them and argue against them, saying, no, no, it's okay to eat with them, it's okay, this is what God's told me. But Peter doesn't get into some legalistic uh, arguments, listing out all these logical points of this rebuttal, rebuts your point and goes against your point here. It's not a logical flow of point-by-point -point argument. But rather, it's him just recounting the facts of what happened. So rather than getting all logical and trying to debate with these people, he simply says, this is what happened right here in verse 4. It says, Peter began and explained it to them in order. So he's not giving a bunch of theological debate points, but he's just saying, this is what happened. He explained, this is what God did. This is how God showed me. This is what God, who God sent me to and who God sent to me. And from that, I want us to also think about another application to our lives today. How might that be a beneficial way for you to, to talk with others about your faith? Others who don't know about God, God yet. Others who don't know about Jesus as the Savior. Or even especially those who aren't quite convinced that Jesus is the Savior. How are you going to discuss and, yes, in a way, debate with them? Is it always best to give a logical series of debate points? Or is it maybe sometimes even more effective, not just as effective, but more effective, to simply tell the story of what God's done? How has he done, worked in your life? How has he worked in the lives of others around you? Well, of course, we're counting scripture to them, right? But how have you seen that play out in your life? How have you seen that God has used you and God has done things? And so that's an interesting thing about this passage is I want you to see that Peter simply recounting, this is what God's done. We all have those parts in our lives, too. Maybe some of ours aren't as dramatic as a vision of a sheet coming down. and then, Right? <laughs> I never had one of those. But God still does things in our lives that we get to recount and we get to share. This is what happened. This is how God's working in my life. All right. So let's look back at this. So verses 4 through really um, 18 is, is a recounting that goes back to Acts chapter 10. Talking about this vision. Okay? Now... Like I said, we're not going to dive into this vision today. I would rather save that for another Bible class. We get into Acts chapter 10. Um, I don't know when that's going to be, but go ahead and read it on your own. So he has this vision, and essentially he's saying, he's using all these animals to show that, that God is showing him that those laws have been fulfilled. That it's not all about following all those strict Old Testament laws because Jesus has come. He's fulfilled them. And now Christ has made it so that you can just rejoice in him and you don't have to follow all those strict Old Testament laws, which will then also come to talking about circumcision and uncircumcision. So he uses this, this vision to show essentially it's about, it's about the gospel for all people. Okay, so let's look at this then in verse, uh, jump to 15. So he gives his, recounts his vision. He tells them about what happened. And then in verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. The Holy Spirit, and this is another key point, of course, right? God's always at work. But here he makes it real clear, the Holy Spirit was at work. And the Holy Spirit fell on them, just on us as in the beginning. And there's some scholars that look at this and think about this being a top, uh, point referencing back to the beginning, being at Pentecost. When the Spirit came on the disciples, that being kind of the beginning, when the Spirit especially came on them in a dramatic way, the beginning is that then they went out throughout the rest of Acts, and they shared the Holy Spirit, they shared the good news, the word of the Lord. 
And so here, Peter's referring back to the beginning. But even some scholars will go, and I think it's fair to reference, with this beginning referring that even Jesus, we see even in his earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit came down on him. That's baptism, transfiguration. Okay? So when you hear this passage, when these people are hearing him recount this, all of these other things can come into play, and you can see that the Holy Spirit is clearly at work in and through all things. Spirit, one with God, the Father and the Son, has been working through all of this time. So then we go on a little bit more. And then verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the, whole, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this again being a direct reference back to Pentecost. He gave us the same gift. Because at Pentecost, who enabled them to speak in tongues? The Spirit, as I kind of just said. Sometimes I give the answers away when I, before I ask the questions, right? But the Spirit came on them, giving them give, the gift of, of the ability to share the Word of God, of faith, to believe and share that with others. That's the same gift that they were given, and this is the same gift that they get to give to the Gentiles. So it's not a discriminatory spirit. The spirit gives freely to all. The spirit gave to the disciples, followers of Christ, but also gives to the Gentiles. The uncircumcised, because the Spirit comes in this world to give faith to all. I was going to talk about this in the, in the other what We'll see the tie-in for John, the Gospel of John a little bit. But again, what are, the, what are the primary roles of the Holy Spirit? When we describe the Father, He's primarily described as the Creator, Protector, and Provider. Jesus is primarily described as the Savior. That one's super simple, especially in Easter season. But the Holy Spirit, what are its primary functions? Those of you who were at confirmation examination recently... Principal's got it. Yep, she's saying it. Calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies in the one true faith. I know, I was listening last week, Pastor Thomas talked about confirmation, and he's like, I don't want to talk about too much, but how can you not talk about 40, 40 youth, like, proclaiming that this is their faith? So I got one more story for you. It was really great confirmation. Oh, was, I'm still so worked about that, because it was amazing. And I asked them that question in the, in the message. So if you weren't there, during the sermon, I was actually asking our, our confirmants, participate and looked at me like wait you want me to speak yes i do want you to speak and that was one of the questions because they know this that's what they're confessing and that's what we all too confess and in the same faith being lutheran christians we all say this is what we believe that the holy spirit calls gathers enlightens and sanctifies now it's not that god the father doesn't do those things and, and the son as well but that's just primarily what the spirit is doing and right here in verse 17 we have a direct uh, discussion again, the Holy Spirit came to them, gave them the same gift, created them faith, created them the ability to share the Word of God. And that's what the Holy Spirit is going to do for the Gentiles, too. Because we're Gentiles, too. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. So when we talk all, all the time about all this stuff, we could say, oh, there's the Jews and the Gentiles. Ultimately, we today are Gentiles, right? I mean, we're not part of the original circumcision party, so we ultimately can be called Gentiles. So praise God that he's given us the Spirit as well, that we too get to hear his word, that we too get to be part of him. All right, so then let's look at this last part of the verse there. Who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Peter says, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Isn't that a powerful statement? Now remember, of course, always scripture, it's first the person who, 
who God um, has in the Word saying. So it's First Peter. And he's saying, who's I that's going to stand in the way of the Spirit going and the, and the Word of God going to these other people? But can't we ask the same question of ourselves today? Who am I to stand in God's way? If you look back in Acts 11, I mean, it was the recounts what happened with the vision. He did kind of stand in the way, right? God gives him this vision of the sheep coming down, these animals, and he says, Lord, by no means, I'm not going to eat that. He did kind of try to stand in the way a little bit. And how many times in Scripture do we hear time and time again where people, sinful, fallen people, try to stand in the way of God and say, no, no, Lord, I can't do that. Or there's no way that's going to happen, or you fill in the blank. And yet God's still going to use them anyways. And not a single person in this world can stand in his way because he's going to accomplish his great purposes. And so think about it today. How might this apply to what you've done or said or thought in your life? Or you've maybe stood in the way of God. Saying, no way, God, by no means. Who am I? Who am I to stand in the way of God? And that's where he ends. His account. He says that in front of these people. And so remember, I'll set the scene again. He comes to these people, they're, they're having this, this debate, this discussion, it's not an agreement, there's this division. So he gets up and he speaks and he gives this, and he shares what happened to him, what God did, what God, God, God did through him. And how they react? What's it say? You're doing it, good! Right? They fell silent. When they heard these things, they fell silent. That's a lot to take in. That's a lot to ponder, consider, take into their heart. And also, I think it's fair to say, having heard that, essentially they're hearing the word of God through Peter, the Spirit's working them too. Because what do they do right after they fell silent? They glorified God. There we go. Good. They glorified God. Right there in verse 18. They fell silent and then they glorified God. So God worked in their hearts too, the ability to have this faith. They, he worked in them faith so that they could believe too. And then they glorified him, that they worshipped him, giving praise to him. Because then that last part of the verse, they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so when they're glorifying God, of course, they're giving it back to Him. But notice what they say God does. Also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, as Lutherans, we know that we must repent to therefore receive absolution of our sins, right? That's the way it happens. And I think I heard this. Maybe it was Pastor Tom. Was he talking about this last week? All the recordings blend together. I was on vacation this last week, which I was blessed to be able to do. And I was listening to a lot of prep for this, so maybe they might lie together. So bear with me if I repeat something he said last week. Repentance, we must repent of our sins and therefore receive absolution. Confession has two parts. First, we confess, we truly repent, want to do better, turn of our ways, and then second, to receive absolution. Okay? We focus so much on the fact that it's our repentance, that we have to repent. I have to confess our sins. But who works repentance? God. Right here in verse 18. That God has granted repentance. And that repentance then leads to life. Their sins are forgiven. They're washed clean. They've received the Savior as their, uh, Jesus as their Savior. 
and leads to life. So, are there any questions on this section of scripture? Making sure I didn't miss anything. Okay. Uh, last thing I'll say on that as we turn to Revelation is that just simply, as we're going to see through all of next week's and all of these, is that this is the this news, the Word of God, is, a, is news for everyone. And that's what we're talking about in this Easter season. Easter season, we're rejoicing that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It's Easter joy for all people. And we'll hear that term, Easter joy, especially a little bit more here in our next reading. So our second reading for next week is from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. I'll read those for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Here ends our reading for next week. Continuing on, this Easter season we have Revelation, which we've had multiple other weeks before. And so we get right in the beginning of this, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And so, essentially, just stated no other way than saying, this is talking about what the creation will be like when it's fully restored. When Jesus comes back to this earth, and this is how it's going to be, when he gathers all the believers together with, with him forever and ever, this is what we have. This is a picture of what eternity will be like for all those who are in Jesus Christ. This new heaven and this new earth. And so, one of the most infamous questions I get, and maybe you get as well, what's, what's it going to be like? Right? What's heaven going to be like? What's it going to be like when we are with Jesus Christ forever? You keep telling me that I get to be with Jesus forever as a believer, but what's that like? How many of you heard that question before? Many times, right? And how, okay, how many of you try to answer that question? Okay, and we can give some answers we're going to get to, but it's frustrating, right? We don't have a full answer of what it'll be like. I can't tell you exactly. Because it says right here in this first verse, the former things will pass away. That's, that's what we're in now. I can only really know what it's like in now. And I'm still sinful, I'm still fallen, I'm still part of this world. I can't even begin to truly understand and fathom what that eternity will be like. Because I'm part of the fallen world, I'm still here in the now. Well, let's look at God's Word and see what we can say, right? Because there's something, okay? How, if you go to someone and they ask you a question about the Bible or your faith, how often do you think they're really excited to hear, well, I don't know, 
right? They ask you a question, they say, well, what about this or what about that? And you say, I don't know. Usually a, a little unsettling for us, right? We want to know as people, as uh, whatever you want to call it, Americans or whatever, I just don't think ultimately as people, as creatures, we want to know. We want to have understanding. So it's frustrating when we can't know. But let's see what God says here. So we have this, um, and we get into this, that this is the new creation, what everything will be like when Christ comes back. And so in verse 2, um, we see the new Jerusalem described here, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So first of all, looking at that, a bride adorned for her husband, this bride referring to the collective people of God. Okay, the, the bride, the church, married together with Christ. It's quite the imagery, really. And I know in our fallen world, we have a lot of distorted pictures of marriages and the like. Okay, very well aware of that, unfortunately. But what God ultimately designs is the, the union of husband and wife is a beautiful thing. Joined together forever. In full unity. One. When we talk about a marriage, and we do, and when we, when we as pastors officiate marriages, we talk about husband and wife are joined in mind, body, and soul. They are one together. And this is the metaphor that he uses for Christ with his church, Christ with the people, Christ with us. That we are one with him forever. Purely, perfectly one. So forget all these fallen earthly standards of marriages and the like, or, or not of able to marry or whatever it might be, all that's gone. Because in the new heavens and earth, we are perfectly restored and we are perfectly united with Christ. And what's even more beautiful, it's with all the believers. So all of us, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ from the beginning to the ends of time will be united together with Him. Which again, I can't understand how that works. Doesn't make sense. But it's okay to not make sense because it's a faith thing, okay? It's a God thing we can trust. So, um, then in verse 3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Oh, sorry, I put those on the, on the flip of your page. So, God will be with his people. And they will be with him. That's his dwelling place. I think I've talked about it here in this class before. But a, a reminder that we don't use that term dwelling place a whole lot at home or in our lives today. You say, I'm not going to my dwelling place, right? Going home. Okay. But scripturally speaking, dwelling place is a, it's a, it's a more packed term than we would think of. Because we don't use it all that often. But dwelling place is to truly be, to dwell, to remain, to be there together. So his dwelling place, God's, is with man, with the people. And that they will be his people. Think that should give you some comfort? I think so. Because that we get to be with him forever. And this is the perfect design of the way it should be. Again, we live in a very fallen world. We acknowledge our sin. Ever since Adam and Eve, that relationship was broken. But when mankind was first created, when God created Adam and Eve, He created them to be in His image, and they were, there was this perfect union. They were together. It broke because of sin. 
So since then, we don't know what it's like to truly be in that perfect union, that fullness, entirety of what that looks like. Now, are you with God right now here today? Absolutely. Okay. Don't hear me wrong. God is definitely with us. Right? Wherever two or three are gathered, he's with them. Where is his word? He's with you. But in eternity, when Christ comes back, we get to have that full, perfect union being with God and him being with us. It's a wonderful uh, message to hear, especially in this Easter season. So then look at verse 4. Here's where we get. Here's how you can describe people. Verse 4 is where you get. Revelation 21, verse 4. When someone says, what's it going to be like when Jesus comes back and everything? There's where you send them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what's it going to be like? Well, it's interesting because... It tells us what there's not going to be. Okay? Notice it doesn't say there's going to be and then fills in the blank. But rather it's there's not going to be and he fills in the blanks. Because again, we as humans can't even begin to understand anything other than what we are used to and what he is in this world. We know death. Unfortunately, far too well. We know what crying and mourning is. We know these things. Of course, we wish we didn't. No. But he uses this term that we can know, we can understand, to describe what's it going to be like. And so, even though we still don't fully understand what's it like to have no death or no crying or mourning, that's the best way he can tell us as humans, as creatures, be beyond the or below the creator, this is what it's going to be like. That's a beautiful picture. Even though it uses some very negative words in there. Those negative words of death and crying and weeping and mourning are negated by there will no more be. So then we go on in verse uh, 6. He said to me, it is done on the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now when you hear those words from, from him saying, it is done, what does that make you think of? Anything else from scripture? It is finished off the cross, right? Now, I didn't do an extremely deep dive on exactly how correlated are those, but I think they're connected. If nothing else, we can see that in Scripture, when he uses those words, it's going to draw us to the other word of God that we heard. That Jesus, on the cross there, as he did it, as he completed the law, fulfilled it all, he yelled, it is finished. He cried it out from the cross. And here, in this perfectly restored creation, he says, it's done. It is finished. I am the Alpha, the Omega, beginning and the end. And then look at that next part of the verse. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And here we have a reference to water. Now, anytime you see water in Scripture, I don't think it's immediately a time to jump to baptism. Okay? Just because there's a river or things, we don't always want to jump to baptism. But I think it's fair to say that here we, we can talk about baptism. The thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life. Because the spring of water of life, is that to me seems like a great, well, to me and other scholars I read, okay? Seems like a great way to reference baptism. Because baptism is the spring of the water of life. That in baptism we are washed clean, we are given faith, that we are renewed in Him, and therefore given life. Life both now and forever. And here's a good Lutheran, Lutheran part to it. Life without payment. Right? We as Lutherans especially emphasize it is free, it is by the grace of God. Nothing we do or say could ever earn or deserve our way. Because here it says it again, right from Scripture. This is why we teach these things. We're Lutheran, we have our Lutheran beliefs because of what Scripture says, okay? 
It's because it's without payment. This spring of, the, of life is without payment. But I especially like that next part, next verse, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. To me, that's especially comforting. It's just a powerful part of this, this whole passage. Because the one who conquers, conquers sin, death, and devil, will have this heritage. And I think, again, there's another word, heritage, that we don't use as much today as, I, from what I understand, used to be used a lot more. But a heritage, it's, it's essentially who you are. Your heritage is where you come from. And so, to him who conquers will have this heritage. This is who you'll be. You'll be conquerors. You'll be ones who, in Jesus Christ, will be united with him perfectly. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Part of the family. Again, I know we have broken families today, and we have family members who are estranged from each other, and all this simple stuff. But here God's painting the perfect, beautiful picture. You will be my son. Women, this includes you too, okay? You will be my child, all right? That I will be your God, and you will be my child. That he will care for you perfectly, and wholly, and forever and ever. It's a perfect family, the way that God has designed it. In a great way, why here we also refer to him as the Heavenly Father. Any questions or thoughts off of this passage? So, what's heaven going to be like? Eternity? We got it. No more tears, no more crying, no more weeping. Alright, let's turn to John so we can make sure we spend plenty of time in that. John 16, beginning at verse 12. So next week in the assigned lectionary, there's actually two Gospels that are assigned, so we get to pick and choose which ones we'd like to read. Um, so we're going to read at, here at St. Paul's from John chapter 16. The other suggested reading for the lectionary next week is from John 13, verse 31 uh, through 35. And those talks about Jesus saying that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Obviously, it's a great part of Scripture, but we're going to go with this one. And then you'll see a reason why. So John, let's look at first at John 16, verse 12 through 22. I still have many... This is Jesus speaking. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world re will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Here ends our reading for next week, our gospel reading next week. So if you're to just listen to that, and think about the other readings we had for this, for this next week, why do you think we might have John 16 being read along with the other readings that are read next week? A couple words that stick out for you in verses 16 and following. It says in there, and this is my, this is my first thought I think most of us will, might hear when we see this, is that Jesus says to them, Truly you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, and your sorrow will turn into joy. So if you're first just listening to these readings, you pair Revelation next to John, and Revelation talks about no more weeping, no more tears and crying, right? And then you have back in John 16, and Jesus is talking about there will be no more weeping, your sorrow has been turned into joy. That's not the connection we want to make. That might be where we first go, and that's where my first thoughts, is, especially if you just hear those words, you're like, oh, well, this is why it's connected, right? Jesus is talking about what's going to come when he comes back to this earth and the new heavens and the new earth. That's not what he's talking about. So I know I just made you think about that. If you weren't thinking already, I said, no way, that's wrong. But it is, okay? Because Jesus is talking about something different. He's talking about something that happened much before that new heavens and the new earth. Spoiler alert. He's talking about the death and resurrection that he, he would do. So let's dive into this and, and I'll explain this more. John chapter 16 is a little bit challenging at, at first for us because we're in Easter season. A few weeks ago we celebrated him rising. But John 16 takes us back to the events of Monday Thursday. So we're going back to Holy Week. Here we are in John 16 and this is Jesus on, on Monday Thursday talking with his disciples. Let's fix our minds on that, okay? This is before he dies and he rises. Okay? And so here in verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And then he goes on to talk about, especially verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now here is where I was originally going to talk about the Holy Spirit, but we did that already. Remember the Holy Spirit's roles as we had from, from Janet over there? Calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies. So here we have him, Jesus, talking about the Spirit. And we're not, even, we're not even to his death and resurrection yet. And we already read that how much is his Spirit going to do great works? All these people creating faith in them and doing amazing things. But Jesus is already talking to them right before he dies and rises. The Spirit will guide you in all truth. And then in those following verses through 15, I'm going to breeze through these real quick. 13 through 15, it talks about the Spirit and the Father and Jesus. And this is a great section, again, of Scripture to look at, a very Trinitarian view. The fact that there are three persons, yet one God. Three persons, yet completely equal. Okay, true God, true God, true God. Because there are one God. And so if you can see in this, it talks about how the Spirit will glorify Jesus. All that the Father has is Jesus's. Yeah, that's a weird word to say. Okay. Trinitarian is very much a unity. So it's a great section to look at the fact that it is one God, yet three persons. We don't want to get bogged down with seeing Scripture. Jesus doing something with the Spirit is truly one. But we're running out of time. So let's look at the, the major part of this section. Jesus says this, this statement in 16, that this is what throws them off. They're all confused. A little while and you will see me no longer. 
and again a little while, and you will see me. The disciples say, what is this? What are you saying? And that might be the question you're thinking to yourself. What's he talking about? If I told you he's not talking about the new creation so that you might be, okay, what is he talking about? And how many times do we read scripture? And we're like, all right, what's Jesus talking about here, right? And so, but I, I do want to point out um, in verse, the end of verse 18, the disciples say, we do not know what he's talking about. That's not them admitting some complete ignorance, that they're just completely ignorant to everything and anything that's going on. Not at all, okay? But simply, they don't know what Jesus is speaking about at the moment. They don't fully understand. Okay, so they still have faith. They still know the rest, other parts of his teachings. But they just simply, he's saying this, and they don't understand. Now, I don't really know that this is super, uh, this was meant to be a part of this. But I think there's a good lesson also to be learned from this statement of the disciples. That we as his disciples today can understand. I think we too today should be able to say, they don't know what he's talking about. When we read the scripture, because all scripture, right, the word of God is Jesus Christ himself. He is the word. I think it's, it should be fair that we should be okay to admit, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? And so then the question, the important thing is when you admit that when you're reading scripture and you're like, what's this? Well, one, don't just leave it there. Okay, let's do something about it. The important thing is, what do we do about it? We don't just read into it and just say, oh, well, he's talking about this, that, and the other thing. Hey, if we don't know, first of all, let's pray about it. No, no, we don't see the disciples praying. So that's why I'm saying this is not explicitly a lesson we're going to hear about in the sermon next week. But I think it's fair for us to see that what do we do when we don't know? We pray about it. Because what did he say just verses before? The spirit of truth will guide us in all things. Okay, so I just think it's a, a side note lesson we can learn from this. But they say we don't know. And thankfully for them, Jesus is right in front of them. Verse 19, Jesus knew. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what's going on. He's, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He even knows that they wanted to ask him something. So he says, is this what you're asking? And then verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, what does that usually mean? Listen up, right? Pay attention. Here comes something important. All of God's word is, but here it comes. I'm going to explain it to you. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, I have been saving it until this time. But essentially what Jesus is getting at now in his response when he talks about being gone for a little while and then you will see me again, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. Because they see him, he's with them, he dies on the cross, he's not with them. He's laying in a tomb for three days. But then he rose and he's with them and he appeared to them and other people. That's what he's getting at here. Remember, Monday Thursdays when he's saying these words. So he is on this day, sitting with them, telling them these things. He's directing them specifically to those moments. Because that moment, with his death, those two moments through his death and resurrection, are the pinnacle of what he came to do. I think I was preaching about this just a couple weeks ago. Those are the moments that he was waiting for. To show the world who he was and what he came to do. And so he's pointing to the disciples to those, those, that moment as again. Well, look at this verse 20, now thinking about that. Knowing he's talking about his death and resurrection, look at verse 20. You will weep and lament the followers of Jesus, but the world will rejoice. Remember, we talk about the world being those of sinful ways, completely opposed to Christ. Now, of course, are the disciples sinful? Yes. 
But those who are opposed to Christ, not believing, not trusting in Him, not following Him, they will rejoice. You know, it's Easter season, so not get back into too much Good Friday, but didn't they rejoice on Good Friday? You had people spitting and mocking at Him and beating Him and, and crying out, and they're rejoicing because there He is, this man who's committing these crimes. He's going to die. The world's rejoicing at this. And yet those who truly know who Jesus is, they lament. Don't we see that in our world today? That today, when the world sees that Jesus' name is not being proclaimed, or when they can, they can disprove, or so they think, Jesus being the Savior, when they can push this Jesus stuff, for la very lack of better term, push this Jesus stuff aside and stop having, stop having people believe and follow this Jesus as the Savior, isn't the world going to rejoice at that? Absolutely. We see that today. Those who don't believe that only part of this fallen world are rejoicing when he's pushed away. But we who are true followers know that we need to proclaim him. Proclaim as the Savior. So the world, rejo or the world rejoices even though we lament. And then it says that last part of the verse, 20, verse 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now knowing this is talking about the resurrection, we can see it even more, right? They'll be sorrowful. And Mary and the disciples, they wept. The foot of the cross, there they are weeping, full of sorrow. They laid their Lord in a tomb, they're full of sorrow, and then it turns into joy. Easter morning. Think about worship here at St. Paul's a couple weeks ago. It was joyful, okay? I mean, the sound was just huge. It was blowing you out of the place because you're full of joy. The organ going, other instruments here in our, in our gym. We had all these different instrumentations to shout with great joy that Christ is risen. The sorrow is turned into joy. I mentioned this briefly again. In Living Stone, our worship here in the gym, we actually started on Easter morning at 9.30 with everything covered and veiled. You start in essentially a Good Friday mode where the altar with all the elements and the like is up here, but it's all veiled with black cloth. I was wearing the black cassock, and we're starting in sorrow. Just like the women who went to that tomb sorrowful because their Lord had died. But as we read the account of the Savior risen from the dead, all of that got taken away. I put back, took off the black cast, I got to put on the white, all in the, the white stool, and we're full of joy. That's what his resurrection does. Takes sorrow into joy. And then look at verse 22. So you have not sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. That's powerful. No one can take the joy of Jesus Christ risen for you away. Remember, he's saying this to the disciples on Monday Thursday. So in part, like that they still didn't fully understand. They hadn't seen the death and resurrection and even especially then we have accounts, right? We've already read them in our other worship services since then. Thomas, who didn't fully believe, he was waiting to see those marks. So that, again, Monday, Thursday, as they're hearing these words, they don't fully understand the joy that's to come. When they see him, when they hear him, they have that joy. That joy that then it will enable them to go and all throughout Acts, right? Acts, as we hear the history of the church spreading, we've already read a part of it today, that joy that enables them to preach and proclaim Christ as the Savior, even in the front of opposition. Back to our first reading. 
in the face of division, in the face of people saying, no, no, you shouldn't associate with them, yet they can still proclaim it. Because their hearts are full of that joy that no one can take. That no one can take even to the point of death. I think Pastor Thomas did talk about this last week in Bible class. The vow that we take when we, give, when we are in confirmation, that we say we are to be faithful to these teachings, to the scripture, the word of God, even to death. Because even to death, we can have joy to know that yes, even should I die, I get to have that eternity. Which back to Revelation chapter 21, I get to have that full perfect unity with Christ forever. No one can take that away from you. Might seem difficult today, right? I think it's difficult to sometimes focus on the joy we have in Christ, the face of things we experience. What might be some things in our lives today that, are, that try to take away our joy? Stress, work, sin of the world, other people who don't want us to believe or they don't believe. or like, I mean, all these, we could go on, we could make, if we had a sheet of paper around this room, we could probably list out all the specific things in this world that can be twisted by sin that tries to pull us away from that joy. That's essentially what the devil's trying to do every day. The devil is trying to pull us away from Christ. Go back to all that spirit stuff I was talking about. Remember what the Holy Spirit does? Calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies in the true faith. The Spirit not only has called you through holy baptism, you have that faith, you have that joy, but it will keep you and strengthen in that faith every day. And I know it's easy for me as the pastor to stand up here and say, yeah, you're going to be okay, Jesus is going to strengthen you. That's the truth. We see it right here in Acts. We see how the disciples, I mean, they are facing some serious things. Honestly, most of us don't ever face physical danger for our lives, yet they were. Some of us in our lives will never face anything close to as challenging as some of the things they face. Many of us will face very, very challenging, just as challenging as they did, just in very different ways. I firmly believe it and tell you that no one can take that joy from you. He's given it to you and it's yours. And so what is the one key theme I think that we can see through all of these readings, especially next week, is that Easter joy. The joy of our Savior that no one can take away. In Acts, it can't be taken away. The Revelation talks about what does that joy truly get fulfilled in when we have one day. And then here, back in John, Jesus is talking about that joy of the risen Savior. And that he will continue to proclaim to the people. Any questions or thoughts? All right, great. Perfect timing then. Okay, so, um, yeah. thought I was going to say something, but I don't. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we again give you thanks for this opportunity to be in your word. Your word, Lord, which tells us again today the fact that you sent your son to die and rise for us. That you have given us great joy through his resurrection. That you've claimed us as your own through our baptism. And Lord, you give us hope today. You give us life and joy today. But also, Lord, we know that we have an amazing, endless joy to be with you and all of those who believe together one day. So, Lord, we look forward to that day. But until that day, Lord, strengthen us in our faith and enable us to find joy each and every day in the gifts that you still give us here on this earth. So, Lord, we pray these things and all things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.